Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. Today, we are here with a special guest, Dave Ramsey. Uh, Dave is a regular listener and a friend, um, and has, for as long as I've known him, been uh, a very careful listener who takes pains not to jump to conclusions, even on matters that might be emotional. He is a jazz trumpeter, who used to do these installations that would combine some fresh trumpet and recorded music and projected photography with careful political conversation. He is also a freestyle rapper and has been making solo jazz-based hip-hop beats with, um, while rapping freestyle over David Brooks's political quotes. He spent a good amount of his life thinking about some of the topics that we'll broach on today's episode. Uh, which is why when Sam Harris did a podcast trying to understand the moment that we're in, in terms of racial politics and policing, Dave reached out to see if we could wrestle with these ideas on heterodox. And of course, since all I do is wrestle with ideas, it seemed like a good idea. So welcome to Heterodox Americana, Dave. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So listen, one of the things that I would like for people to be able to do is to get a full sense of, of all the ideas that we're talking about uh, without necessarily going back and listening to the, the Sam Harris episode. Uh, mm -hmm. I want it to be a robust uh, experience in and of itself. But, you know, Sam Harris, he talks uh, about a few things in this episode. Um, what's your take on, on some of the most some of the most important matters that he brought to bear. Right. Um, so I'm going to try to give a brief thing about it all. Um, I went to the Black Lives Matter March um, in Philadelphia, the second one where they didn't, uh, there wasn't like looting, I think it was March 6th uh, that happened. Um, to show you know that i was for that i am for most of what the black Lives matter movement has been doing and and as well as to show that their peaceful processing is possible with six feet then um i was speaking with a family member about some ideas and they sort of made me question the the video the george floyd video and uh and some of the uh the the insinuations of racism around that and statistics essentially around crime, right. um, which I dug into and tried to send them um, some stuff, which they're very skeptical. So they didn't really uh, like any of that. And then I ran into a video by John McHorter, which sort of confused me a little bit. Mm. Uh, and then I decided not to show my roommate because I thought he would take that too far. And then, uh, and then Sam Harris uh, was sent to me and it sort of made me rethink what I had previously thought and, and question basically what I presumed was the way that things were. Right. 
Um, he throws out, Sam Harris particularly throws out a lot of statistics. Right. Um, and, and questions the way that we feel about those statistics and some questions um, which I, you know, have basically been exploring and trying to figure out how relevant it is. And since I already give uh, Sam Harris a lot of uh, bias because I simply, I meditated right before this using his meditation app and I've been doing it for, you know, the last right. year. Um, so that gave me more like, am I right? Is he right? What's going on with these ideas? Right. I, I like that you brought that out. It, it's not just the, Sam Harris didn't just bring out some of the statistics, but also our, our feelings around them and, and what our feelings about that suggest. Um, and I'll, I'll say, well, let me say, you know, my take on, on what I heard in this particular episode. Uh, it seemed like he was concerned at least about this moment that we're in, in terms of our ability to talk freely about ideas, uh, irrespective of how comfort, you know, how, how comfortable they are. Um, I, I have a different uh, way that I move in society because I'm, I'm not a wealthy white guy. Uh, but I do hear his point about what it means to um, to have to tread somewhat lightly, especially in this political moment where um, it seems, I think, for some people that saying the wrong thing could end you up uh, in, in, let's say, if not political hot water, then like social hot water. Um, and so there's a tension, uh, um, a reticence, I should say, around talking about some ideas. Uh, he also brought out some things about, let's say, and I don't know if we'll get to them necessarily, about the problem of race, uh, the way we think about policing, um, and what it means to kind of carefully not just take what we see at face value, uh, and um, to really to move slowly about it. Um, there were some face value issues that I had in terms of uh, what things mean, but hopefully we'll be able to flesh that out uh, in the show. Um, but those two things, what is the real nature of, I guess he was mostly talking about police shootings, and uh, what is the nature of, of how we engage with discourse even around sensitive topics? Those, to me, were the two biggest takeaways. Yeah. Um, Angie, if, if you were going to set up what your takeaway was, what would it be? Well, I was, um, I listened to this particular podcast in um, spurts, like I'd list, I was listening, I listened for a while and then I shut it down and I'd come back and I'd listen and I'd shut it down. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I mostly was paying attention to something he asked us to pay attention to as he was talking, which was my feelings as he was moving through what he said. Um, and I was really interested in, in trying to understand what I was engaging as he was talking, um, and perhaps what it's like to listen to somebody that, um, for me, I, he, there was some part he mentioned in there, he said, okay, now he set it up something like, okay, now what I'm about to say is going to be really hard for some people to hear. And so I want you to keep that in mind. And I may be a hated person for saying this. He sets up this whole thing and then he starts talking. And um, I was glad he gave me the charge because uh, it kept me coming back to myself to say, he's right. I don't, I, I'm trying not to shut this down in, internally, emotionally. And I kept trying to honestly, internally feel myself open up trying to hear him talk. 
Um, and so that's what I was interested in. There was, um, and just a little insertion here, uh, Raphael had posted something on um, the heterodox uh, Instagram recently, a video of him um, responding to something that uh, Sonia Renee Taylor had mentioned around asking questions. I thought he did this really uh, wonderful job of kind of opening up this idea that we, um, we come to each other with open dialogue and questions. And I think going into Sam Harris's podcast with kind of already hearing Raphael talk about what it's like not to shut down questions, but to let's take this as a right time to listen to each other and understand that we have a lot going on in the mix of our emotion. It helped me to hear him. Um, and I appreciated that he was willing to say things that perhaps um, were controversial and that it was going to take a lot for a lot of us to hold on to and listen to. So that's kind of where I was with it. Right. Yeah. Um, ultimately, some of, uh, you know, if I, if I really try to understand um, his project, uh, and I think it's the project of, of so many people for whom th this is all new, right? Like overnight, I think for a lot of Americans, it seems like overnight, it was like, well, what's going on? Yeah. And how do we understand this moment? Um, and, and there are some, you know, there, there's, a, there's a genie there, there's a trick there that I think is necessary to kind of really dig beneath. But, um, you know, if we try to understand this moment and we relate it to, uh, let's say, uh, the, 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 the killing of black men uh, at the hands of police by gun violence. And the seeming response to that, um, where, you know, I think people try to understand uh, some of the social response is that there, people are responding to this idea that uh, black men are being disproportionately killed by, by police, uh, or at least through, through, through gun violence. And uh, in some ways, he, he starts to marshal um, he starts to marshal evidence that that might actually not be the case, um, that it might look, uh, that the numbers suggest that that's not actually, um, that things may not be what they seem. Mm -hmm. uh, and that if we look at, let's say, for example, two factors, the amount of overall white people um, who are killed by police, uh, the, their numbers are much higher. And if you look at the proportionality of the amount of black men, who are killed by police? Um, there's also um, there's also proportionality that you have to look at in terms of let's say criminality, crime, and homicides committed by people who would ostensibly be engaged in uh, in, in tussles or in encounters with police, and we have to consider that as well. When you consider uh, the amount of violent crime and the amount of white people who are also killed by police, that this disproportionality doesn't look so stark at all, and maybe it doesn't seem uh, actually like the problem that we think it is. Um, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, um, so, so my take on it began, and I like, began with me trying to convince my family member finding statistics that um, that the perception there, because they're sort of just uninvolved in being like, what's going on here? 
And I was like, well, let me send you these statistics. Let me find some and send them to you to show you the, you know, the, the problems that there is. There's a misrepresentation. The clearest one is like the um, unarmed deaths uh, or shootings of uh, black men relative to their 12% um, uh, amount of our population and then uh, versus you know, the 25% um, relative to unarmed people's deaths that they're taking. That's obviously different. Um, and it took me a while to dig up and find that and send that. And then Sam Harris put into different perspective and made more nuance with those, with more statistics. And I was kind of, I felt this tension with myself that was like very much like, so wait, 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 like is, is what I've been thinking this whole time wrong? Like, is the, right. the, this is like, because of my personal experiences and my personal discussions with people in the black community that are my friends um, and how they've changed my mind from, you know, the way I was raised in suburban white Texas to, to here, to see their, their association, it's completely changed to basically falling along the lines of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then to get, have these statistics make me go, wait a second, is this totally different than what I was thinking before and kind of thinking, I think, I think it is mm. different than, than the way I was perceiving this before. That um, was striking to me, but it was also more particularly, it was like, wait a second, can I even tell anybody that I think that this is different than what I thought it was before? Like literally like the statistics, like, or the, the John McCorder video, I was like, don't give this to my roommate. I think that he will be drunk and say this very loudly and get himself into a lot of trouble. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Like that's sort of in the back of my head. And I, I didn't, I still have not sent him that video. I did send him the Sam, the Sam Harris thing. And this is, this, this is a white guy who, um, um, you know, his girlfriend is a black woman. Uh, and it's just like, there's, there's this danger around it, I feel like. It's not real danger, but it's like this like, whoa, wait a second. Uh, and even that brings into to the way that I felt about coming on the podcast. There was a moment where I was like, wait a second. Is this going to really, really negatively affect my life if I say something that I don't mean to say or that is mischaracterized or whatever, right? Because a lot of these sort of cancel culture and things that come, those are aside, um, I, not specific to, it's sort of mentioned in the Sam Harris podcast as well, that a lot of people are afraid of actually speaking on these ideas even just using statistics for fear of slipping up, um, but even for fear of not slipping up and, and just being lambasted because you're on the opposition side. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, so I, I mean, I'm unafraid, but I, I also, whatever, like I grew up fighting, right? Like I'll, I'll fight, I'll fight you. Right. Um, no, I'm, I'm unafraid. I, I think really because my relationship um, to the status quo is a little bit different. Um, and the amount of social capital, the, the way that I get social capital is not from not rocking the boat. And so social capital never works for me in a sense of, uh, like I have to rock the boat. That's, that's, that's the only way things will, will make sense. Um, but do you have any, I mean, do you have any of that, that sense that your social capital could be depleted if you said the wrong thing? Uh, me personally, not as much as I think most people. And because I think part of the reason you and I are friends is because I also come from that same sort of thing. 
Um, and in fact, more so when I was younger, I was much more brash and um, less considerate of others' opinions and whatnot, and just you know willing to say, "Who cares? Let's just let's just talk." Yeah, talk about it. Um, and now I've been become much more interested in like doing the better good for people and trying to be uh, more influential in the best ways I can and building trust with people. So, um, but I do fear for, I do think at this moment, because of, at least I wonder, I'm not sure if it's, it's actually true, it could be a false fear as well, that the idea of like cancel culture and, and maybe some, from some of the interactions I've, I've had and been accused of certain things, um, even though I've really felt I was agreeing with everything the other person I was talking to was saying, right. that that has sort of become a thing that can get you into a lot more trouble than is reasonable, than I would consider reasonable for people. Not necessarily just blow back on the discussion on the ideas, but let's take this further and find right. anything they've ever done in their lives. And that's, that's the thing. It gets crazy. Yeah. But personally, I'm actually not afraid because I also am like, this is important, I think, for people to have these discussions. Right. And uh, generally, I live my life in a way that is unencumbered by responsibilities that even most people have. So, Angie, how has this played out in, in your social circles, <laughs> your relationship with social capital? <clears throat> Well, I think something you said um, <clears throat> that f for you, <sighs> there has been a different kind of tie around your, your relationship with social capital. Um, and I think that for me, just hearing this on a personal level, um, I have a lot of things going on. I have being female, I think is one of them, <laughs> um, and how I see the world in that way. Um, my age, uh, my certainly being white. And, you know, I, I'm trying to understand even in this, in these moments, how much of it has been, you know, um, trying not to rock the boat around what I was taught of what even is feminine, you know, um, and not, not to divert this at all, because there's so much in here. I think as I was listening, we, we, Raphael and I were listening to Candace, um, what's her last name? Candace, Candace Owens. Candace Owens yesterday. Um, and whether I was agreeing with her or disagreeing with her, I was absolutely um, taken with how, um, how much she is able to hold on to herself and say what it is that she's so deeply convicted about. Um, and so Rafa and I were talking about this this morning, like how, what is it that she has to gain and what is it that she has to lose? Um, and what is her relationship with that? Um, I personally wouldn't, I don't feel like I have um, enough, I guess, internal fortitude, I think, to be able to state my, you know, whatever I would be saying that would be controversial. I, I'm, I'm so aware of that most of the time. I'm less aware these days than I used to be, but I, I certainly think that I think twice before I say things. I, um, I realize that there could be a cost to me if, if I were to think that I'd step on somebody's toes. Right. Um, I think I was even, you know, I, when you made that video about Sonia, like your, your response to Sonia Renee Taylor, there's a part of me that I wanted to, to post it on all of my social platforms, but I was also considering the people that, that may not agree with it. And I was so aware of that. Like, why, why am I so, you know, lax or, or refrained, restrained in trying to share this? Cause I'm afraid of what people might say. 
afraid so, of the blowback. Right, afraid of the blowback. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not sure we can really get to the heart of the matter by. But again, it, you know, in some ways, it, it's sort of about you know uh, protecting social capital, which I think I, I'm more interested in in the explication of ideas um, than 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 trying to protect my status. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's for a second let. Um, Let's look at some of the things that are on the opposite side of, um, we're not, or just the opposite side of, of what Sam Harris presented in terms of data. Okay. Uh, and for me, one of the things, so, you know, can we make this argument? Um, and I think for some people, it seems like black men are killed disproportionately uh, at the hands of police. Uh, and that's one level of the problem. Um, there's a question about, is that true? Uh, and we, we see a lot of things that happen on video, but are, are those flukes? Are those the exceptions? Uh, or does that speak to another um, kind of bigger problem? So the question is, does this speak to a bigger problem? Um, and in some ways, I, 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 I just don't know. Uh, I can look at what Whatever data sets we have, they come with their own problems, right? There yeah. is a reporting problem uh, because police departments, uh, they report this voluntarily. Uh, and we don't have a national database of anything that keeps track of this type of, this type of thing. Uh, and because it's voluntary on, on the part of the police departments, there's a selection bias that's built into that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, if you are particularly egregious, you know, if you were to take a place like Rich, Rich Hill, Missouri, which is just like a random town in Missouri, um, versus Ferguson, Missouri, and Rich Hill decides to report all of their incidents, and Ferguson just, they opt out of it. Even the FBI, uh, the use of force database that they started in, in 2018, it, it's, it's, not, it's not compulsory, it's voluntary. And lots of organizations don't submit their data. So right. we have a problem in terms of gaps in the data. We also have a, a reporting problem because, you know, if you give the police the benefit of the doubt, are they telling, the, you know, then, then they're telling the truth in, in what's happening. But the question is, do we give reporting police, do we give them the benefit of the doubt? And that for me really kind of depends on your prior relationship with police and how you understand police forces. Um, and that, that I'm really, really, really unsure about. Yeah. So, and I think we were kind of talking about some of this stuff before. And, and one of the things that I've been exploring and talking about a lot with people is essentially benefit of the doubt. And even trying to prepare for this and trying to like send things to my family member, like it is very difficult to go, okay, let me send you some statistics in 10 minutes. Uh, to even if it's even if you, your case is set, like it's very difficult to find those, gather them, and give them to someone in a way that you know they will give the benefit of the doubt to, right? Like I sent this family member an NIH thing, and they immediately jumped all over the title. And I was like, it doesn't change the numbers, but okay, right? So obviously, we all have our different benefits of the doubts. Which in my conversations with with one of my black black friends, particularly, we had a discussion about policing years ago. And he very much changed my mind, at least in how 
the perception of the people that I know that are white perceive police relative to the way that his community, the black right. community in Philadelphia perceives police interactions. And just that perception is, was so different in our, in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of these things, like the benefit of the doubt, like Sam Harris could be total BSing everything. I tried to fact check some of this stuff. I tried to fact check one thing. I spent 30 minutes and I kind of got okay. You know what I mean? It's like, he could just be total BSing. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt um, simply because of my prior, you know, bias towards the things that he does. Right. Um, yeah, that it's it's very fascinating to see how these things like play out in general. And with statistics, right? The statistics are so flawed. But so what do we give the benefit of the doubt to when we have these conversations? Right. So th- this is, for me, it's kind of the, the crux of why it makes it so hard for someone like Sam Harris to really explore this, right? Uh, for it, it's exactly this reason. If, and, and this really, I think, is about the, the racial, the racialized way that we think about police. Uh, kind of to the, the, you know, to the point that you just made, uh, how different communities perceive the police. But also when you look at uh, the history of police and what really the police, like what is the project of policing in the United States? Uh, I, I could make this argument, and I will, um, that policing is essentially, the police are there a, as a means of protecting one property and protecting white people. Um, and on the face of it, that might seem ludicrous. Uh, and, I, you know, here's an anecdote that goes a, a little bit uh, to it. Um, let's not bring in an anecdote because that's, that's one point of data, right? Okay. Um, but when you, when you grow up, let's say, let's think about the social environment. For a lot of people growing up, the police were the heroes. They're the people that you call. Uh, there is a, uh, there's Mayberry, whatever that show was. What was that show? Yeah, Andy? it's Mayberry IFD. Yeah, you got it. Okay. <laughs> Good job. And, I do not know of Mayberry. What, what's actually, the other so, one? Sorry. Uh, Mayberry. Uh, I mean, oh, the like, Andy Griffith show. That's right. You described the Andy Andy Griffith show before. Yeah, right? Andy Griffith. Thank hey, you. Hey, yeah. I listened to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and there is a there is a cultural sense that uh, the police are on your side. They're who you call when you want to get a cat out of a tree, like whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The benefit of the doubt. Right. Sure. They're there yeah. for you. Uh, but what happens, you know, when you when you have police plant drugs on you, or you see yeah, yeah, yeah. plant drugs on someone else. Yeah. Uh, there's a very recent video from this month, I think, from July, where you have Philadelphia Police Department trying to put a stick in, uh, in a man's hand, a black guy's hand, um, and they try several times. I- I'll send you the video, and, and I'll-, I'll make it available on-, on the website, too, just so that everyone can see what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, but they try to put a stick in the guy's hand to later kind of argue that the guy had a weapon, that he had a right. stick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Once the stick is in his hand, they try maybe three times to get the stick in his hand uh, and then start uh, stepping on his fingers so he'll release the stick that they just put in his hands. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what happens is that one of the police officers notices that someone is actually re- recording mm-hmm. and the entire thing sort of just like deflates. But who knows what would have happened if, uh, if that person hadn't been there recording. Sure. If your relationship like that is one of distrust, giving the police the benefit of the doubt about how they report about, and so I'll say a little bit about myself, and this is, this gives me 
a few more anecdotes to work with. Okay. Uh, having worked with the district attorney's office uh, in Philadelphia for four years, you know, I got to be in relationship with the Philadelphia police uh, in ways that uh, lots of civilians don't get. Sure. And what I was able to experience as they take the stand, as they're in the hallways, as we're doing prep, is that there's no way, me personally, I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt. Gotcha. But there was this bus, you know, and you know, I, I'll wrap this point up. I don't know whether you saw this. There was a bust of, um, of all of this data about the Philadelphia Police Department, specifically um, the strike force uh, around drugs, where it's proven that there are all these lies that happened um, in, in testimony. And now they're looking at having to throw years of, of testimony out because it seems like these same police officers were lying on the stand. Mm -hmm. now, I've seen police officers lie on the stand. Yeah. Uh, but the question is, if you don't have Mayberry as a frame of reference, and instead um, you have planting evidence and lying on the stand as, as a frame of reference, then it, it's almost like you, you come to an impasse as to whether or not uh, you trust the data of self-reporting. And I don't, I don't know if there's even a middle ground. And that for me is part of the data, that's part of the data problem that is, you know, it's a data problem inside of a data problem inside of a data problem. It's reporting and a gap and a bias and are they lying? Right, but that's all from your anecdotal evidence, right? You know, like, I mean, I, let me, let me, let me, let me add to that. Right. Um, I completely agree with everything you're saying and I believe it. And that is also how I feel about the police at this point. Right. I, I feel that that is how police function. So like, I completely agree that. Um, what I'm interested in, and, and perhaps let's say this, perhaps Sam Harris does not feel the same way that you and I both feel about police. That's what I suppose. Yeah, that's I, okay. Yeah, which which is interesting and and, and worth noting. Um, that being said, one of the one of the peculiar things about me as a Philadelphian um, is that I'm constantly and, and a moderate. I'm constantly trying to get other sides of the story because I presume that there is someone in Oklahoma who is a good, intelligent, hardworking person that I would want on my lifeboat um, that just completely feels the opposite about me because they have different evidence on right. almost any topic and wondering how I can bring them into this particular topic to believe that it is worth pursuing. And maybe even thinking like civil rights time, um, so the civil rights march is happening, I'm in Oklahoma, how do I get convinced that this is the right thing, right? Right. So I'm trying to figure out how to convince these other people. In fact, my, the family member I'm addressing is a um, moderate uh, conservative that lives in a conservative area. And it's lovely to talk to them and try to figure out how to convince them of these things. And I think that it's useful to, I think there's two bets. One bet is that if you build a large enough culture changing thing based on let's totally, like the police are horrible and we need to, let's say defund the police and you build up enough of a coalition you can run over people who disagree with you. I'm someone who's trying to figure out how to convince and bring on, the, on this side the people, not by emotionally um, parading, but by logically giving them the best statistics I can to convince them. Right. I think the, the, the process or, or the, 
the way that these, um, it's so hard to parse through this because of the emotional aspect. And we can't, we cannot divorce it from that. Um, you, you know, you're talking about your family members. I, I have, um, just this week, I, I was talking to an aunt who has, I think two of my cousins were police officers. One is actively a police officer. And she has a lot of emotional process around how she thinks cops are being treated. And she kept saying this thing. She kept saying, these are my family members. These are my family members. And I was listening to this thinking, you know, as uh, George Floyd was somebody's family member. You know, I've, you know, there are family members of many of us that are being affected, but this emotional kind of, um, particularly from her at that moment, I thought, well, she's not getting beyond her emotional understanding of how this works for her son to see mm -hmm. this in this broader base. But I think in, in the same way, the Sam Harris thing, you know, cause I was hearing kind of somewhat to you, to your point was I was hearing a lack of an emotion around this. And I thought, yeah. well, you, you know, we can't erase that from this. And that's why I think it's, it's so difficult. There's no way we can look at this because even, you know, just what, what Rafael was saying just now, what you were saying is that there are problems in and of itself with, you know, reporting racial bias. We, we don't know how, you know, the police aren't going to report that. Right. Um, so, you know, there is this inherently emotional piece to this that we cannot ignore and it's got to be a part of the discussion. Um, that's why I don't think just statistics, just as looking at numbers, um, are going to get us anywhere. We've got to address this holistically. Right. Right. Okay. So I agree with that completely as well. Um, the question that I have is, are statistics worth anything? And if they are, which I think that we believe are worth something, um, which ones are and which ones aren't? And should we use them and how do we use them? Yeah, that's, wow. So, that, and this is where, this, this is where methodology comes in, right? And this is where methodology is really, really important. So methodology in social sciences, uh, whether, it, whether it's economics or whether it's psychology, they already have a little bit of a problem. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if it's self-reporting, now we have a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. So if, if you think about some of the, the best, um, you know, so, uh, self-reporting um, things that happen in, in psychology. Um, there's, a, there's a guy out of, I think he used to be, I think at Chicago's, Mike sent me high. Uh, what he would do is instead of asking people uh, to report on their experiences, uh, he had some, some volunteers and they would get random pages throughout the day. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, they could report right at that moment, he, here's my experience. Yeah. And it, it's not this, this, uh, this self-reporting that happens later when you've had a chance to reflect. Mm -hmm. From a methodological standpoint, we don't really have the same thing here. And so there's a problem with the methodology. Um, and, and this is really what I'm arguing. So yes, it's anecdotal, but really it, it requires trust. And trust is in some ways without trust that the reporting is happening. And, and we can't know that, right? So random sampling would do that or an outside observer would do that, or an independent uh, source of watching every uh, instance would do that. Mm. Uh, but since there's not trust in the methodology, uh, since we don't have trust in reporting, then the entire data set becomes fraught with these problems. It's fruit from the poison tree. Well, okay, so that, that I think in itself to what that obviously, I think we should be skeptical about data. 
and and we should try to parse the nuance as much as we can. And I, even preparing for this, fully appreciate how difficult that is to do. Right. And actually, I'm looking to get into some of that. I've been studying, uh, looking to study a lot more of that now. Um, but it gets that ends up throwing out all data. And even even between you and I, right? Like, you sent me some things to check out before, and what I noticed was these are never sources that I would send to my conservative family member that lives in a conservative state because I know that they would look at where it came from and they would throw it out, just like you said. Right. So even what we send each other, the sources media, like we have to be careful with and, and try to figure out. And that's, I think it's important to try to figure out because we get information from somewhere. It may, it, maybe it's all from the poison tree, right? But that means that the George Floyd video is from the poison tree as well. Maybe well, the, it's a jump, but like, you know what I mean? At what point in this spectrum of information do we say this is qualified? This is not, I have a good opinion. I don't, you know? So as a data point, I would agree. Right. Um, as a data point, I would totally agree that the, the, the George Floyd video is, is I mean, we have to, we have to question its reliability as a representation of anything that's happening systemic, right. As a data point. Right. What we don't have to question though, is what we saw. Um, Correct. And I think from a visceral standpoint, uh, I mean, listen, there, there are lots of, as we talked earlier, right, there, there are lots of, of white people and black people who are killed by police in different ways. So mm -hmm. what we have the most data about are, are, are the people who are shot. We have far right. less data about people who are choked to death. Uh, sure. And in some sure. ways, when, when we do the reporting, there are, there are other types of death that simply don't, they don't show up. Use of force doesn't show up. Right. And, and, and I think when we, if we go back to Sam Harris's point, uh, or really, I think his intention, his intention is, is trying to understand how this moment uh, of, let's say, uh, civil, civil unrest came right. about. And I think his assumption is that there is this disparity in the way that blacks and whites are killed um, that really led to this, uh, this civil unrest. And in fact, I think that that assumption is, is not true. It is less to do, I, I would argue, it has less to do with the people who are shot and killed and the overall problem with policing. So there, there's, yeah. there's a bigger problem with policing that I don't think was on his radar, and he focused on a small portion of it. Uh, so George Floyd, for example, um, he wasn't shot by police. And, and it he died nonetheless, and that's right. a problem for people. Uh, when you look at Eric Gardner, who wasn't shot by police, uh, but died nonetheless, or Freddie Gray, who died, you know, days later, or this, this recent kid, you know, uh, last year, Elijah McClain, who, who wasn't shot by police. He was in a chokehold, and right. then days later died. Uh, right. it, it, it's this type of thing that I think is the bigger portion of why we see um, the, the political and the civil unrest, if it were just about shooting alone, that would be one thing. But there's actually a broader context where people are killed or people die uh, directly or indirectly at the hands of police and there's no accountability for it. And that's really the big thing. Okay. So, and, and this is specifically non-gun violent related, right? Like without being shot by the police. 
because that's where the statistics are. Right. Sort of and, and that's, I think that that is in fact some part of the problem because we don't, there's zero data for, for the people like Elijah McClain. Gotcha. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. I, I was presuming that those people were also included in what I was trying to uh, inadequately use as data. Okay. Um, all right. Now that, that is, that is very reasonable and that, that makes sense. Um, so with that, like the, the question is what percentage, like, do we just have no statistics on this? And so if we defund the police, we'll have better statistics. Like that, it kind of goes into that direction as well. He's like, is defunding the police actually a reasonable slogan? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily know if defunding the police, so let's talk about defunding police because mm-hmm. I, I think it means different things to different people. Sure. Uh, and in some ways, I think defunding the police brings us into this larger question of a policing problem. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were just looking at, I mean, and I think you've made this point, I, I've talked to this point, I think Sam Harris's point is that essentially we don't have um, a gun violence, a, a shooting black men problem, at least not the way people think that it is. Uh, but there's a, there's a more important question is, do we have a policing problem? And so the, the police kill about a thousand people a year in the United right. States. Right? Yeah. Part of the thing that I sent you is the police kill about uh, 15 to 20 people in France a year. Yeah. Um, that's a huge difference. Now, France is smaller, but it still ends up being about 10 times as many people per capita. Per capita, yeah. Um, if you bring in German statistics, those are only a fraction of France's. And it's right. almost unfair to compare what happens in Germany to what happens in the United States. Sure. So, so black people in the country are saying that, you know, people are being choked to death. People are being, you know, like innocent people, right? Like Elijah McClain, innocent people who have no criminality, who don't have criminal records, um, are, are, are meeting their demise at the hands of the state. Uh, and there's no accountability. People get to keep their jobs. Right. Uh, even so there was a uh, do you know the case of Daniel Shaver who's a white guy he's in a hotel uh, yeah yeah I think yeah I think I, he was shot in the hallway right yeah yeah I um, saw that yeah one of the most horrendous yeah uh, you know acts of, of state violence that you could see perpetuated uh, uh, per, you know on a, on a on a citizen but the question is so I think there's some sense and I talked about this broader sense of of black people that feel that there is no responsibility um, when it comes to police uh, and, and, and their relationship with the citizenry. But if you're looking at state violence in general, you might easily ask, why aren't white people more upset about the fact that they're being killed so, so readily by police? And if we look at a place like Germany, if we look at a place like France, then even per capita, um, the police are doing something like 10, 15, 20 times uh, the amount of murders uh, of citizens than than what is happening in the United States. So the defund question, for me at least, and it means different things to different people, the defund is, do we need officers to have AR-15s? Do we need officers to have tanks? Uh, Is it possible that the police force in Germany has enough to actually do their job without the war machinery that, that the U.S. has. And, and so can we take away the, more, the war machinery that wasn't always there? It didn't always exist. 
Right, right. Um, can we take away the war machinery, the, the billions of dollars that police uh, forces spend and, and still have effective police? You know, when I was listening to that podcast, he was talking about how um, um, when there's an altercation that you always have to keep in mind that there will be a gun involved because cops have guns, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So he was saying that no matter what, if there's a resist of of arrest or even if it's just, you know, a citizen like, you know, going to like slap the police or punch the police, the police, he was saying, always have to keep in mind there's a gun, there's a weapon. Right. So either they're going to use it or somebody else could use it on them. Right. Yeah. And so then he posed this, he said, so should we not, should the cops not have weapons like they do, I guess he said England. And he said, right. but then we have to remember that we have um, a, a proliferation of guns in this country. So because we have so many guns available to so many people, we can't take the guns away from the cops because we have a gun problem. But mm -hmm. if there weren't, was not a gun involved in the cop and citizen, you know, the, the, the person that they are having the altercation with, that there would be more of a likely response of not to have to lead to some kind of death, like violence um, that would cause death. Right. Maybe, but I mean, the, the other side is like, but obviously like the Eric Garner, I'm sorry, the, the, the Freddie Gray, no, the George Floyd, excuse me, the George Floyd video was a non-gun violent death, right? So, mm -hmm. and that's, that, that leads back into its own, it's very complicated discussion. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I think that everyone agree, not everyone, I, I don't know how everyone feels. Um, certainly, I think everyone here thinks that a reform of all of this in whatever way works best is necessary and useful for everyone for yeah. white people and black people right um and of all colors and whatnot all americans um especially especially when you look at it relative to other countries um i don't know that people on the right feel that way and i wonder how and i think particularly sam harris in this wonders how um how divisive the way that, that the language around Black Lives Matter um, is, and therefore by dividing, you're also cutting off a chunk of population that would love to be on the let's reform police side, side but because of the language are then flipped over to voting in a different way um, and because they are uh, disgusted by the language that, that is so foreign to them. Right. Yeah, that, that, that part is, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds when it comes to that. Um, and, and part of the, the part of the reason that I, I'm of two minds is because, you know, I'm always trying to place things in, in a bigger context, um, which is something that I don't think necessarily happens if you're just looking at, you know, like, can we understand the relationship between, um, between the property destruction and capitalism? Because there, there, there's a relationship there. Um, uh, you mean with the, from the, the looting after right. the protests? Okay, yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's also important to, to note the subsequent protests and the lack of looting uh, yeah. versus that, that first round. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whether it's, you know, anarchist or Antifa or just like flat looters, uh, there's a relationship that is there between, between capitalism uh, and the way that people feel, even in this moment, right? The way millennials feel, 
um, there's a relationship between the destruction of property and what people are, are um, the, the way that they feel about the system. Um, so when you think about the, I, I don't want to do, so, uh, you know, part of how our system is, is, is built is around these, these John Locke, these Lockean ideas around what it means to protect property. And that's built into the way that we see our country. Um, but we, we've had a, a little bit of a shift, I think, especially at the generational level, where there are lots of young people who don't feel about property and they don't feel about capitalism the way, let's say, baby boomers did, or even some Generation Xers. The, the tide, I think, has turned. And even you have academics who, who really, so there's a Nobel Prize winning uh, economist named, uh, named Angus Deaton, who's really starting to make uh, a, a, an argument against capitalism uh, and, and whether or not it's good for humanity, as does Paul Krugman, who is another Nobel Prize winning um, economist. Uh, but as these things turn, uh, do we understand the destruction of property only in terms of what happened with George Floyd? Or is it part of something that's way bigger and that started before and, um, and people don't feel about the preservation of property the way that they used to, or at least young people? Like that has to be part of the discussion. Maybe. Uh, I mean, when I think of the looting that happened recently, um, it reminds me of looting that has happened in the past. Um, in California, uh, the Watts riots uh, that my parents, you know, talk about because they were in California at the time, and uh, and as as well as Rodney King, uh, post Rodney King. So I, I'm not sure if it, things have changed that much as far as that sort of stuff is concerned. Um, maybe, you know, um, I certainly am someone who is less tied to property than my my family before me. I think that I've talked to, but yeah, economically, I'm not sure how, how, how much that's tied to, to Freddie Gray or not. What, what's interesting to me about the, the looting portion is there's sort of like these hypocrisies that I, that I sense that may not be hypocrisies, but seem to come out. And particularly when I went to the black lives matter protest here in Philly, I came back and my roommate was like, it's interesting that all of these people went out and protested and they're on the left. And they were very angry with all the people that protested a month before that wanted to open up our economy. And, and I was like, wow. Like I had just gotten back and I was like, wow, that's, that, that's me. And I, like, I pushed to keep my six feet, but I don't know that they weren't pushing to keep their six feet the month before. Right. And, and in that I see the sort of hypocrisy or wonder about it. And the, and the sort of like, well, there's looting, what do you expect? Sort of thing that I've gotten from people I've talked to that it's like, wait, no, don't we all agree that breaking random businesses, especially in a time of like, you know, economic woe for everyone is a bad idea? Do we not all agree that? That's like- I don't, a, I don't think that everyone agrees with that. Right, okay. Yeah. That's surprising I, I, to me, I, I, but I that's interesting. That is at the core. So yeah, I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but um, you know, whatever. I live in West Philly. I know a lot of anarchists, right? Yeah, yeah. Really, I'm really, religious. and these are all white anarchists. Uh, and not that that's important, but it's it's somewhat important. Um, and if you look at uh, a lot of the destruction of property, what what you'll see in this case, which is very different than what you saw in LA riots, 
is you'll see one, a lot of destruction of property at the hands of white people. You'll also see a lot of looting at the hands of white people. And in some ways that makes it different than I think, uh, not, not just at the visual level, but I think that there's something that's ideological that's happening. Uh, but there are a few things that, that, that have gone around too. Um, and again, I, I, I don't wanna rely heavily, so heavily on anecdote, but when we look at, um, when we look at the, the kind of, the role of anarchism, and when we look at the role of, of Antifa and what they want, destruction of property is like kind of high on their list of like things to do. Uh, uh, and that is tied to their anti-capitalist position. And so even in a vacuum, uh, you have lots of anarchists and lots of Antifa people who are willing, I mean, when I say in a vacuum, I mean, nobody got killed. Let's just destroy some stuff on the weekend. Like that's a real value for them. Yeah, I do not give that the benefit of the doubt. Uh, <laughs> you know, like to me, that just doesn't sound useful for what the goals are for most of the people that I know, I think. And right. Yeah, I'm I, not I sure that, I mean, perhaps I, I haven't really asked them that much, but I, I don't think, I don't think that they think looting is okay. Well, I, I want to separate the looting from the destruction of property because sometimes oh, destruction of property happens without the looting. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and whether or not it's okay, well, I, I think you hit that. The, the I think you hit it right on the nose when you said, depending on what their goals are. Right. If their goal is destruction of the system, then uh, then any manifestation of that is, is fair game. And certainly, I, I think what we saw was an overlapping. Right. BLM is not. First of all, BLM is. There's there's no head to that. There's no there's no single force to how that manifests sure blm is not antifa right and, and both things are present as well as the the oppor the opportunists right? right there were loads of opportunists as well sure whatever the anarchists want and whatever antifa wants and whatever blm wants might line up insofar as it's a reimagining of the order that we do things uh but i think for a lot of people who are pro-black lives matter they wouldn't want to live in, a, in an antifa world Okay. Um, right. I think I would agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, y you know, it's, it, it's, is there utility to it? Uh, not for the world that I want to live in, but I think for the world that they want to live in. Yeah. They, I think they, they think it's useful. Right. So, I mean, essentially you have this, what I would consider a minority, um, destroying property. Um, and, they, it, I would suggest that we figure out a way to prevent that from happening, right? Like we have a system of laws that we try to like use to keep those sorts of things from happening, right? No? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's, <laughs> that, that is the essence of what our laws do. It's just that, that earlier you, you were saying, I, I think we all agree that destruction of property is something that we ah. don't want. And I don't think that that's the case. Gotcha, right. Point made, understood, um, yeah. But even even so, like like you you did say that you don't think that the the Antifa world, let's say, or uh, is the world that the Black Lives Matter movement wants to live in, um, and I don't see that the destruction of property is one of the core tenets. Not that I've really investigated. Let's just throw that out there. I'm presuming, so I didn't presume some things, um, and so I feel as though that's sort of carried on to a movement that you know would prefer they weren't, and therefore would do well to really vehemently, you know, tell people not to. 
And I feel as though there's this, I feel as though there's this sort of like, no, nah, it's going to happen viewpoint from people that strongly believe in the, in the Black Lives Matter movement, even among my friends, even though they don't want to live in that world. Right. And that's, the, that's where the hypocrisy is, I think. It's, it's not like direct, but it's light. It's like, yeah, well, I kept my six feet while I protested. And I definitely, that was like my main point. And I tried to get other people to do so as well. But I was still, I don't, I didn't know that the other protest that I didn't like that was happening three months or six or a month earlier was not doing the same thing. And my presumption was hypocritical. And so, This is why I think the emotional basis, this stuff is so important. This is why, I mean, I think understand, and I don't know that there's, you know, one track to go to figure out out how everyone is doing this emotionally. Right. But just like, you know, what you're saying when breaking it down, you know, the emotional um, impetus for those that were protesting masks, the emotional impetus for those that were protesting um, police violence, and, you know, what, what that means to others. I mean, for us to assume that our emotional process should be more important either, either way, and I have feelings about this, but it's not understanding really the core of it, right? It's saying, well, shouldn't this, you know, if they're protesting this in terms of the pandemic, um, well, shouldn't that withhold with, um, you know, protesting police violence? Emotionally, I don't know. I don't know how those things play out. I don't know that they're on complete equal footing. But how do we determine that? Who's, whose needs, you know, probably on both sides, people could argue their emotional um, impetus for doing what they do. But it's both groups saying, well, I said this, so I should get that. It's like kind of almost like the toddler argument. You know, if I, if I stamp my foot and say this shouldn't happen, then you shouldn't get to stamp your foot and say this shouldn't happen. And, I, and that's why I think, you know, listening at this point in time is so important because we come with these um, presumptions, you know. You know, even these like things we don't even note, kind of what you were doing there where you were saying, wouldn't everybody not want destruction of property, which would seem to make sense, right? That makes sense. But what is the emotional um, basis to that? I don't know that not everybody wouldn't want destruction of property, but why? Let's talk about it. And I think, you know, when we come with these assumptions, then we're really mostly saying, um, we're stating from our emotional position what we believe to be true. And then we're forgetting about the emotional process of the other. And we're just saying that they are, you know, they're being hypocrites or they're out to lunch. Um, and it's really hard to parse through. It's so hard to break down. But there are reasons for the way people do something, not just in the face of, a, of something else. It's deeper. It can be, you know, even this movement now with police violence. I mean, certainly I heard one woman say it on, um, she was being interviewed and she said, yes, I, I recognize that I'm putting my life at danger. She, she was a, like a middle-aged black woman. And she said, I realize that we are in the midst of a pandemic and I'm putting my life in danger, but I felt as a, as a black woman that my family and our lives have been in danger for a very long time. So for me, it was to pick one danger over another danger. Do I just continue to feel like this is not a moment to seize part of going out and finding you know, this kind of danger and being quiet? Um, and she had to choose basically what she was saying. Yeah. No, so I, I certainly appreciate that choice too. And speaking about the emotions, this is, this is something that I've 
play around with and I've kind of always struggled with because I think I tend to be less of an emotional thinker than many people or something. Mm. Or at least I've always, I've, emotions, emotions have always sort of been my enemy, let's just say. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've always thought of them as like annoyances. Uh, not anymore. And, and, so, and so my, I've always, and, and there's, I think there's merit to the idea that if you just go by your emotions, you can awfully find yourself as a fascist. You know, like it could very easily lead to that way. If you don't stop and say, wait, these are my emotions. How do I question these? How do I try to use logic? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that being said, you cannot lead a movement um, without emotions, I think is very important because I think we sort of previously discussed Jonathan Haidt stuff. That's where I got it anyway. Like artisans already made by our emotions a long time ago. um, Unless we stop and think about them. And essentially like my roommates, some of them, uh, I know went out against their reason of the things that they have been saying for so long and emotionally went out to these protests, not very thoughtfully as this person that you talk about, which I very much appreciate mm-hmm. uh, and just went. And that's essentially, mm-hmm. that's what happens in movements, right? Like there's, you cannot presume that all, even, even the majority of the people that are going to follow a movement have actually really thought it through as well as the leaders um, have looked at the statistics, yeah, right? And fair. so obviously the emotion part is necessary. Um, I tend to lead on the more, lo- try to be logical, try to avoid the emotion side. Um, but that's where, that's where I wonder about the Black Lives Matter, uh, Matter movement because I, I feel as though there's a lot of emotion swept up. And with that comes to like, you know, possibly what could happen to me if things are taken the wrong way in this. And that, suddenly someone's like trying to ruin my life, which, you know, is not that easy to do, but possible. Uh, and that, 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 that is part of our culture now, actually, which is not very logical, but is very emotional. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and there's a yeah. slight, slight logic to it, but it's like, yeah, go get that person. That, that's a bad person. And like movements, like following also the, uh, um, the Me Too movement, right? Like and the argument on that is, is Harvey Weinstein, like, should have been behind bars years ago. The, the law, the justice system didn't work. So let's use this movement of emotion to, to get at him. Sure, but that does flaunt the justice, which is not necessarily yeah, yeah. bounced out. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so essentially it's how do, we, how do we parse this using our emotions, um, questioning our emotions, being logical, but also like using them well to make movements for the right things. That, that's a great question. And I think part of what I was considering is the word hypocrisy, you know, yeah. which it's fair, it's fair to use it, but that's what I was considering. Is it, is it sheer hypocrisy or is it something else? And I, I think that nuance is, is particularly important. So that's a good point. And I think even if we, we back off of this idea of, of it being hypocrisy, um, there's still this question as to what the emotionality does to our ability to, to reason it when the emotionality starts to run amok or starts to run wild, uh, which I, I think in some ways speaks to this cancel culture thing that we were talking about. I wonder if the, okay. Uh, I wonder if like discussing this st- statistic, um, puts me in more danger of cancel culture, like things, possibly. I don't really feel very in danger, but you know, could be. Um, and the idea that 
not like being afraid, having attention and being afraid of discussing statistics, um, I think is somehow related to that. Hmm. And that's, that's a weird thing that, I mean, maybe this is what people have always felt. Uh, I'm generally a, a fairly bold person and I've played around with fear my whole life and I kind of, you know, can just make it go away for the most part. Uh, I'm pretty good about that, maybe because of my privilege and whatnot. But uh, yeah, the the cancel culture idea that seems to exist that I've heard mentioned by my friends um, that weren't like, this is messed up. You know, they were like, yeah, this exists. And they like kind of smiled and nodded. And I was like, oh, interesting. And David <laughs> Brooks recently wrote about that and just suggested that that's probably not that that might not be where we want to go as a culture, um, as a country. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely not where we want to go. Um, right. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know if the if if the mere mention of statistics uh, is enough to um, to to kind of elicit this this cancel culture um, response. But if I know cancel culture at all, I've had some I've had some run-ins. Have you? Okay, uh, I, I have. Sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, I I mean I I've had run-ins and I don't care. Right? Sure. Like that's like whatever. Um, the, the, there are a couple of things that happen I think around statistics in general, uh, especially if you're not a statistician, right? I think it could very easily get away from you. And then you end up really, I think for a lot of people, they end up citing the interpretation of wherever they, they got that source. Sure. Uh, and not really sort of, um, you know, looking at what the data says and looking at what it doesn't say. Um, right, is this recording? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that is, uh, so that's one, one, one problem. If I were, you know, on a university campus and I was trying to make, let's say, what is essentially a philosophical argument about the relationship of the state to its citizen and violence. And even if I knew statistics well, but especially if I, if I didn't have a strong handle on interpretation, and then I were met with um, something like, well, here's what the data says. Uh, it one either asked me to, to go in and do some independent research, which I'm probably unwilling to do, which is why I'm, you know. Um, right. But also, it, it's a different, I think of, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it necessarily addresses the, the, underlying, um, the underlying philosophical problem. And, um, I don't know if you can necessarily reconcile those two, but if I were hostile to outside voices in general, which mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, listen, this is how it goes, right? You can, <laughs> there are lots of white male professors who have had really hard times uh, on, on, um, on college campuses. Um, and, you know, Jonathan Haidt, and I think he, he might be right in this, there are some, some, some sacred groups that people rally around. If you're not in one of those sacred groups, if you're not in a protected group, and you want to push back with something like, you know, this is really famous. I, I want to say it was Brett Weinstein, but it, it may have been. There's another professor who was at uh, uh, Evergreen, uh, Evergreen College, I think. Oh, I remember. Uh, in Oregon, was it? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, but but if you're trying to have 
what seems to you like a reasonable conversation. Mm -hmm. um, there are all these other things that are happening in the background um, that you, you may not even know that you're aware that you're stepping into a particular conversation where the way that knowledge gets made is actually part of the, the, the argument against you. Um, That's confusing. Then, then, <laughs> then it's really hard. And, and when I say that, for so we've talked a little bit about uh, epistemological advantage, right? So, yeah. you know, epistemological advantage you might think of as as someone who understands. So, you know, I I, I think the way that we talked about it before, we talked about, uh, you know, are there some things that the black people who who navigate. Uh, sort of like a black political world as large as, as well as like a larger political world? Are there some things that are visible to them? Are there some things that are more immediately knowable to them that you might not see, right? And right. Yeah. feminists might make the, the same argument. Mm -hmm. uh, Which well, I, I think I've experienced in my life through conversations with my black friends and women. Yeah, and, and that, that to me seems like a, a legitimate, like epistemological argument to make, but even outside of like gender and, and like racial terms, you can imagine uh, somebody like Harvey Specter, who's a fictional character in a show that I like. He is a top lawyer who worked his way up from the mailroom. And if you work your way up from the mailroom, then you've seen enough of the organization that other top lawyers may not see. Right, right. The, the argument would be the type of epistemology that a Harvey Specter might do. Uh, it incorporates more of the moving parts of the organization than someone who came from a competing firm and just got offered, a, let's say, like a, a partnership. Okay. He, he's just seen more uh, of the, the workings of the firm. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're bringing in something as, uh, however it is that you've made knowledge, right? I've read these books. I know the arguments. I have, uh, uh, let's say, you know, I took a few logic courses. I can make a logical argument with respecting uh, the rules of engagement. Um, somebody might argue, and I wouldn't make this argument, uh, but somebody could argue that those rules of engagement were, were made by, by men and how men have discourse. Again, I wouldn't make that argument. But okay. even if you think that you are a respecter of this is clear discourse, um, cancel culture might not see it that way. And to be, to be fair too, I mean, there's been a lot of statistics and data that have been used against groups of people. Um, Absolutely. Folks are Agreed. Right. Yeah. And unless you're a real statistician, unless you are understanding how this information is compiled, you would just take that as these very brilliant people that wrote a book called The Bell Curve or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's dangerous. And, you know, just like what you were saying, it took you 30 minutes to look up some information yep. that he was trying to get across. And, and, you know, even coming across this where I think you would mention, Raphael, that there's not a lot of data out there for for people that aren't shot by police. Right. You know, there's more of the police shooting. So it gets so confusing. And so we can throw out the data, but really, unless we are a statistician, how do we even parse through it? Right, so does that mean we'd never use data? And if not, then how, what do we use, right? That's my, because I'm, I'm ultimately interested in influence, right? Because I believe that I am mostly on the same side of the Black Lives Matter movement um, from what I understand of it, which is incomplete. Uh, and I am interested in convincing, particularly this family member that lives in a conservative area, uh, that is influenceable, I believe, by me, uh, 
interested in influencing them to reconsider what they have going on around them and to basically join the side um, in some way. Yeah. And at yeah. least not see it as their enemy uh, or their um, adversary for what they think should be going on in the country and what they, sh- where sh- they should be voting and whatnot. So how do I influence them um, best, do you all think? Yeah, in, in some ways, I, I, I think, uh, I, mean, I think that's a great question, right? And, um, and I think it speaks to both things, both how we, how we use the data. Um, instead of saying, you know, to what extent is this a problem? Uh, to instead of asking a question, is this a problem? And do we know how many, you know, uh, and turning that to a question is how many is acceptable? Uh, and that really becomes the kind of nature of, of the philosophical thing um, that, that I think it, it takes to make uh, the country work the way that it, it wants to, to make. There's another question in that, that's really the philosophical question that I, I think might appeal to uh, the people that you know on the right. And it's, uh, it's what kind of country do you want to live in? And right. what, is, what is the relationship between the state and its citizens? Mm-hmm. And so we can all agree the, even proportionately, right? And the reason that I mentioned France earlier, because, you know, France has an ethnic makeup that sort of mirrors that of the United States. Cool. They have a large minority population. Uh, I've had encounters with French police. They're not friendly, right? Uh, cool. but, but, but per capita, uh, and, 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 you know, in, in Western Europe, France kills the, the most of its citizens. In Western Europe, right? And, and, and if the French can do this, right? I mean, we're talking. <laughs> we I'm sorry. I sorry, caught friends. myself. <laughs> um, but for all the things no. that the French do well, um, is there not a lesson uh, that we can learn in terms of policing? Is there not a lesson that we can learn in terms of policing? Uh, and why is it such that the, the, the French have a tenth um, of the amount of their own citizens per capita um, murdered by police? W- why is that the case? And, and, and what kind of, so you, you might ask. Of, but, but I mean, yeah, even in that though, you're using a statistic, right? Sure. And, that, and, and from what I understand from those arguments, which I think we should try to avoid getting deeper. I mean, unless you really want to, um, like that they'll just take it to like a, well, different country, different culture too many guns here sort of thing, which then becomes a whole other conversation, not what the, not based from the Freddie Gray video extrapolation, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I hear that on one level. Uh, right. I, I think police work has been operationalized enough that you have, uh, you have US people who, who train in Israel, you have Israelis who, who train in the US, you have, I mean, like police work has been operationalized enough that there are loads of police who train, who cross-train other cultures. Cross-train, understand. Up training, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, I don't know, I mean, from a human being standpoint, uh, you know, the point that Sam Harris was making, if you have a gun on your hip and you come into conflict with someone who's unruling or, or unruly or potentially a threat, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily coming down to culture as to whether or not, I mean, the French police officer doesn't want to die any, any more than the American police officer. Sure. He still wants to protect himself and is really still dealing with the same dangers. Right. In terms of how we think about police criminality, I mean, uh, French criminality, uh, you know, so there are not as many guns uh, in the hands of of French um, 
uh, citizens as there are in the hands of American citizens. Okay. But, but French criminals are, uh, they're in no shortage of guns. Right. So, so the real threat to police, I don't necessarily think is different across cultural lines. And they okay. still end up really performing a different type of task. Right. Uh, and, and, and that to me feels like if there's a culture that needs to be looked at, it's not US culture versus French culture, it's what is the culture of the United States police? Or what is the culture of different police departments? Because I, I don't think there's one culture. What is the, the culture of, of different police departments? How do we train to de-escalate? And is there enough like real de-escalation training uh, and, and other techniques for, for, non, uh, for non-lethal force? Okay. That for me is a, is a question. There's, there's this interesting thing with, I think maybe statistics that we can agree on, like that, that I've, I've been wondering about and trying to have in conversations. Um, and it's not easy to, to find, but you know, like let's say that the French, uh, you know, uh, police shootings per capita is 10 times less than the Americans, right? I did, I've not looked this up at all, but I agree with you that it's likely that um, from the other things that I heard. So I give that the benefit of the doubt. So we agree on that and we can talk about this. There's something to that that I've been trying to figure out how to do better when I'm having these sorts of conversations where I'm trying to influence people. Because I think it is inevitably you're going to run into some sort of statistic, statistic, even if they bring one in. But if you can find something that you at least agree in in the conversation, then, then it might be useful. So I, I definitely agree with that. And I also, you know, I think it's exactly that, um, that, so you were asking about these, these people who are, you know, maybe they're family members of yours or people who you know that, that are on the right. Um, and in some ways, it's, it's what are the ideals that we, we want to agree upon? Um, and I think for a lot of Americans, what they saw in, um, so here's my take on, on why we saw so many protests that were even happening in small towns is what kind of country do we want to live in? And is the citizen protected? And I think even one instance uh, uh, of, of really something that's not just an accident, but it's like a violation of the relationship between the state and the citizen is enough to, is enough to really spark a fire. As we saw with the Arab Spring, uh, there was one guy who yeah, yeah. himself. Which I, which I have to, yeah. Say we've had enough. Right. Um, and that, that's really my, would be my question to, to your friends and family members is what kind of country do you want to live in? Well, I mean, I, you could, to throw out there this, I'm not sure if this is going in the right direction, but um, what came to my mind was, do we want to live in a country where people are afraid to discuss statistics right. um, because they might be canceled? Do we want to live in a country where we risk um, the lockdown of COVID uh, to spread a disease possibly for something that ends up in looting and riots. And those are questions that will come up as well um, off of a video that may not necessarily prove racism in itself. And I think those are all reasonable questions to ask and worthwhile dispensing with in a conversation and trying to parse down. Um, But but yeah, I, I do like the, at the very least, it does the common humanity of us all wanting, having particular ideals that we would like the country to be on and trying to start through that. That does make sense. I do like the, at least starting with that question. 
Yeah, I, I like the way you put that too. You know, here, here's something that I, I'd like you to think on uh, and everybody else to, 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 to sort of think about as we sort of wrap it up. And I don't think we'll, we'll get to, to deal with this here today. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, uh, and this sort of, you know, kind of points to, to one of the things you said about, um, you know, the things that we, like about property and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, about the basics that we agree upon. Um, and then entering into, inter- entering into a new paradigm where it, it feels like we may not even be able to bridge the conversation. Like we may alienate people enough um, right. that we can't even come together. Uh, and we've, we've hit that point before. Um, and, you know, like it or not, that one side won. But, you know, w- once upon a time, there was uh, a lot of dissent uh, uh, around a, 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 what you might consider like a relative minority of people about really being fed up with King George the uh, Third mm-hmm. and really being fed up with the king um, and, and taxation without representation was a problem. Um, I think the quartering uh, of soldiers in our homes and who knows what those soldiers are doing they 're eating your food right mm-hmm. but are, are are they touching your wife? are they touching your kids? Mm-hmm. Right, and why do I have to come home from a, a hard day on the farm and find this guy in my house? Mm-hmm. I, and I think it was objectionable to lots of British subjects at the time mm-hmm. that they had to live this way. Um, and, and, and so they started really, you know, I mean, it, it tore families apart. The idea that some people were still loyal to the king, and some people were like, "We got to get, we we got to do our own thing." And what it resulted in was not an easy conversation, not a way to reconcile these two sides. These two sides were not reconciled. Uh, what, what the early patriots did said, we're pushing forward. And, and that's how we end up with the country that we have. And you might argue uh, that it's better than, than living under, uh, under the king as subjects. I, I don't know. Um, but there's certainly a point where I think reconciling just becomes untenable and then we enter into a new paradigm. Sure, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Um, I don't know that we're at that point, and I don't know that many people. Well, let me let me put it this way: what what immediately comes to mind with that, the idea of revolution, is uh, is the idea that innocent children and innocent humans will die, and that is one of those things that I feel like it's easy for people to get caught up, particularly it seems more liberals to get caught up in revolution needs to happen. The whole system needs to change. Let's burn it down. Um, but the next question is to ask, to ask every person who wants to do this and is willing to do this is like, are, are you okay with innocent people being murdered in this thing? And if you're willing to go that far now, it's a spectrum. So you don't necessarily have to go that far, obviously. Right. Right. Um, and that's and that's important to know too. But when you get to that end of the spectrum, innocent people die. And if you're willing to allow innocent people to die because of what you you know ostensibly started, um, then okay, that's we can discuss it from there. But most of the people that I know that like the Black Lives Matter movement and and care deeply about these issues and are on the left, um, I have not heard any of them tell me that they are ready to to see innocent people die which is something that just must be factored in. Do you ask it specifically in those terms, innocent people? Uh, yes. 
Fair enough. Um, like I children. Mean, children will die. Like that's part of the deal. Right. Um, so, I mean, and it's interesting because um, I mean, we have at least, I mean, dude, it's, it's Tunisia, right? It's the Arab Spring. And what people are, are willing, even like you said earlier, you said, you know, leaders at least have to keep in mind that once a movement gets started and the emotionality of the other people who are following, once that gets in the mix, once that gets added to the, to the formula, that you may not be able to put that genie back in. Um, right. And so I, I think we, we are at a point where we, we do have some choices. It's not quite Tunisia yet. It's not quite Egypt yet. We're, we're not there. Right. Um, but the choices that we have to make is, um, you know, do we end up with some version of the Arab Spring, which more, you know, fewer people died, you know, per capita in the Arab Spring than, let's say, the American Revolution. It's not quite a revolution, but... Um, wait, wait, Syria the, was included in that, yeah? Syria ended up in a civil war. It started as an Arab Spring thing. Uh, yeah, they, they tried. They ended up somewhere else. Um, okay. But, but Syria is a good point. Um, but, but the idea that we, we could do something like Tunisia is not even necessary if our institutions are, are able to look at themselves and say, actually, we, we can change this. We, we can make a, a, a type of, of government where citizens get to participate fully um, and actually all of their, their, their citizenship and all of their humanity gets respected. If we can do that, then we don't need to look at Tunisia. Right. Yeah. Oh, Angie, please. No, because I, I was considering what you were saying earlier, just um, a, a minute ago, you were talking about um, will we get to this point where we could talk about, you know, COVID or Black Lives Matter um, without feeling that we can't have the conversation without, you know, cancel being in part of a canceled culture. Um, and that, that's what I say. And just hearing what you just said and what you're saying, I think, you know, even if we talk about revol revolution, um, my thought is, so I'm going to tie it back into COVID. I think we're doing something we have to start doing something new. It's, it's, I mean, certainly we're gonna learn from history and we have all these examples, but from this time forward, and I, I do think whatever's happened with George Floyd and what's being um, exploded in this country is the best time to start to figure out what's new now. How, how do we do something new? Yeah. And instead of keeping, you know, um, certainly we're going to have to go back and figure out what we've not done and what we need to do, but to start to think in this direction that doesn't look like it used to look like. Um, and to your point, you know, to be able to talk to each other, if we're already coming at this with um, an idea that we're going to be canceled and that we're going to have to argue against being canceled, then we're already on a defensive side and we're not really listening. And I think taking the time to try to figure out how to listen at this point is going to be so hard to do, but so important. And going back to my point, even when I was listening to that Sam Harris thing, when he started warning me how I needed to hold on to myself, that's when I knew that things were going to get really go really sideways for me. And I did, I kept holding on to myself. I just kept doing it. And I'm not saying, you know, I have superpowers, but the point is, is that we've got to, to listen to each other and we've got to be able to break through some of what we keep pressing down when we say we don't want to be a part of cancel culture. And it's hard. It's really scary. So, you know, and I, I think going forward, it's not like we have to keep doing what we've always done. Let's do, let's try something else. Yeah. 
So, Dave, I, I want to give you the, the last word here. Any final thoughts on, uh, on where we are and, and where we go? Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely love the idea that now is, is a fantastic time for us to change things around big time. Mostly, at the very least, from a level of the fact that all of our habits are already changed. Mm-hmm. And since they're all kind of up in the air, yeah. it's, much, it's the perfect time to reset them in the best way ever. Um, and particularly from the, from my perspective, I hope that the Black Lives Matter movement continues to do what it's been doing by creating this conversation Mm. and, and moving the needle, which I I think we all, at least you, Raphael, seem more optimistic about the needle moving more than ever. Um, and I hope it continues to move. I also hope that people like Sam Harris are considered and listened to um, and not, you know, canceled and are seriously listened to and considered and not just seen as the enemies, um, but possibly as people who can help the Black Lives Matter movement redirect to a better and stronger way uh, in the future. And uh, yeah, and I hope I've learned a lot from this and I hope to continue to learn and yeah, ask that's great, man. questions. Listen, uh, tell, tell people how to get a hold of you uh, if they, if they want to find you somewhere on the interwebs right uh i have a website it's called dave ramsey music.com um it's probably easier to get in touch with me through my instagram which is dave ramsey music at instagram or the other way around whatever that, however that works and uh yeah please don't cancel me i'm trying to <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to learn and be nice and uh honestly think about these ideas Listen, man, I, I really appreciate you, you coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk in the real world uh, sometime soon. Sweet. Awesome. All right, man. Good to see you. Yeah. Angie, it was such a pleasure. You too, Dave. Take Thank you guys care. for doing what you're doing. Indeed. See you, man. Cheers. And for everybody at home, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in.